We are in the third week of this Advent season. Traditionally, that third week is all around love, which is super appropriate. We've been praying a little bit earlier on and praying leading up to this week that we would encounter a God of love in everything that we do, right from the beginning, through our fellowship together, through the people sat around you, through the word of God as Victor comes and speaks, through our worship, through testimonies that we share. We want to grow, don't we? in the love of God. And I don't know how much you feel like you need the love of God in your life this morning. Let me just encourage you. You do. You really do. I really do. We so need to encounter this love and be loved by God. It says in 1 John 4:19 that we love why? Yeah, because God first loved us. So we can be comfortable, we can relax knowing that we haven't got to impress God this morning. We get to respond to his love, which is great. Lovely. So last week, um, Mark and Steve shared with us some things that God had been doing in their lives and that God had on the same night spoken to both of them, one through a dream, prompting them to invite somebody back to church and the other being woken and being told to come back to church. So what an encouragement that is, that God is good and speaks to us daily and weekly. Um, This week as I was preparing to lead to be here this morning, I was woken at 3am, which seems to be God's timing, not mine, I can promise you. Um, And it wasn't a loud booming voice of God speaking to me, but he put two verses on my heart, um, which I think are right to share with us this morning. The first one was Psalm 34 verse 8, which is, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then Psalm 84, verse 11, which is also the psalm that Matt um, preached on a couple of weeks ago. Um, And it says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favour and honour. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. And this is my invitation, or God's invitation, to all of us who are here this morning, is that we... um, Whether we've been a believer for 70 years, seven seconds, or are yet to make the decision to follow him, God wants to bestow good things on us, and he wants us to draw close to him and to focus on him. And so I just pray that this morning we say yes to God, and I'm just going to pray. Holy Spirit, come and we welcome you here today. In the busyness of our lives, in the preparation of Christmas, we ask that you will open our eyes, soften our hearts, and focus our minds to receive your love. We just ask that we will um, know your presence with us in the coming week. Come and meet with each of us this morning, Jesus. Amen. Amen. It's so good, isn't it, to be together? Okay, um, there are two readings. The first one coming from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 45. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 45. Um, uh, That's headed up, the birth of Jesus foretold. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. <clears throat> May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfil his promises to her. And then we go to chapter 2, verses 22 to 35. That's chapter 2, 22 to 35. Uh, this is where Jesus is presented in the temple. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Then the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Thanks, Karen. I'm going to invite Victor to come now. I'm going to pray for him. Now, actually, many of you, you will have been blessed by Victor, but you didn't know it already. And um, hands up if you've been baptized. Okay, that's a whole bunch of you. Hands down. Don't embarrass anybody. But the likelihood is there'll be loads of you, myself included, and I've done this with many, many people over the years, who've worked through a book called Believe and Be Baptized. Maybe now you're thinking, ah, Victor Jack. Well, that Victor has blessed you in writing. He was the author of that book, which um, I've used for the last 
three decades on multiple occasions. And so we want to thank you for that. And thank you for being with us this morning. We're going to pray for you. Father, we thank you for Victor. We thank you for um, all that he brings. Thank you for his love for the word. And thank you for his love of discipleship too. Thank you that he, this discipleship that, that rolls into mission and sees uh, King Jesus loved more um, still in a powerful way, uh, burdens his heart. He longs to see you more. And we just pray that some of that passion for the Jesus that he loves and for your word and would spill into our hearts and minds now as we listen. In Jesus' name. Amen. The interesting thing about that little book on baptism, I wrote it in the back of a marquee in the middle of a mission. And I sketched it out because some young people were asking to be baptized. And it's just as I wrote it some 45 years ago. And since then, it's gone into over 80 different languages and the last two are in Arabic and in Japanese, and I've done nothing to promote it. And I'm just amazed how God can take a simple thing and multiply it and use it. And he wants to do that, doesn't he, with all of our lives. So we come this morning to the topic I've been given, which is Mary Believes. And I just propped my notes up there. And on the screen, there should be a picture coming up, and it's a picture of a church in Austria, because Lord Eccles, in his book, Halfway to Faith, tells the story of a small church in the Austrian Alps, and it had a very beautiful crucifix outside, so much so that the people in the congregation committed themselves to paint it every year, and they did that for a hundred years until they fell on hard times financially, and somebody in the church dared to suggest that it should be taken down and sold to raise funds. Well, after they got over that, they took it down to the curator of the local museum. And when he looked at it, he said, I can't possibly put a value on it unless I have the permission to strip away all the paint that's been accumulated over the last hundred years. And they gave him permission. And when he eventually got back to the bare wood, he saw the most ex exquisite piece of carving that he had ever seen. And he said, this is of immense value. And when I read that story, I think, isn't that true of Christmas? It has been overlaid with so much speculation and so much commercial exploitation that people don't realize just how valuable is the message that Jesus came to bring. And we have to get back to the bare wood of the Bible and sweep away all the traditions that have been built up over the years. And that is particularly true in the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it would be true to say that our Catholic friends have added doctrines that are not actually in the Bible, like her immaculate conception and her bodily assumption, and other legends and myths have been added. And they all have to be cleared away, and we need to come back to the bare wood, the text of Scripture, if we're to get the true message of how wonderful is the gift of Jesus to each one of us. Well, if our Catholic friends don't tend to make too much of Mary, I think sometimes we as Protestants make too little of this wonderful woman who was described as being highly favoured by God. We need to just keep in balance the possibility of too much extra emphasis and too little acknowledgement of what a wonderful woman that Mary was. Well, this morning I want to concentrate on two things the interview she had with the angel Gabriel, 
and the interview with the aged Simeon in the temple in Jerusalem. So let's look at Mary's encounter with the angel Gabriel. Gabriel came straight from the presence of God and brought the word of God to Mary without any extras or embellishments. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. And the virgin's name was Mary. And you'll have noticed I've highlighted three words, pledged to be married. And the same words appear in Matthew's gospel. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. In both Gospels, the word pledge to be married is used. And it shows us something of the relationship between Joseph and Mary before the angel came. So what does it mean, pledge to be married? In Mary's culture at that time, there were three steps towards marriage. The first is what we call the engagement. When the young couple were engaged without them ever knowing it because they were children. And the parents, they would sometimes employ a matchmaker, can you believe it? And they would meet up as respective parents of the boy and the child to decide whether they would be compatible. And questions would be asked. And of course the children knew nothing about it. And then came the next stage. And this all happened because in Jewish thinking, they didn't want couples to be married just through human emotions and physical attraction. They felt the wisdom of parents should be involved. And so the next stage was the pledge. And that was when it was made when they were a little older. And they were able to meet together in public only. And they would walk and talk together. And at that point, if the girl was not happy, she could break the arrangement. During that time, can you believe it, they were known as husband and wife. And the sense of commitment that has been made is so serious that if it could only be broken through a divorce. And then came the third stage, which was the actual marriage. When it took place, first of all, in the father's house, and then he would take the bride into the husband's house and they would be joined together in marriage and the marriage would be consummated. So we need to note that Matthew and Luke are careful to set the record straight that Mary was a virgin at this point and no sexual relationship had taken place. And so we come to the message of the angel I've got a dry throat this morning. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. Now, at this point, you have to admit that the message she received was remarkable. And the tab tabloid prince press of the day would have had a field day in dramatizing it and in sensationalizing it. For example, a young woman is met by an angel and she's told she's going to become pregnant without any man being involved and that the child she's going to bear is the son of God. You can imagine people being very skeptical about that. And the story for many people is still very difficult to accept because we live in a world where people don't believe in angels. 
And yet it's not surprising, is it not, that they believe in astrology, the signs of the zodiac, the demonic, and even dabble with witchcraft and the occult. But they're not willing to admit that an angel could appear to a young girl. Well, it seems Mary, as a believer, doesn't question the angel's appearance and she doesn't question the thought of the Messiah being born because she would have been brought up in a culture where everybody was longing for the Messiah to come and to establish the new kingdom. What Mary found it difficult to grasp was the part that she was going to play in this, that although she was a virgin, she was going to become pregnant and was going to carry in her womb the very Son of God. So what is her response? She says, how can this be, seeing I am a virgin? It's understandable from her point of view, because she's had no sexual relationships with any man, and yet she's going to become pregnant with the Son of God. And Dr. Luke gives us very few details about how this would happen. There's no discussion here on genes or chromosomes to satisfy skeptical agnostics who would simply say, I can't grasp this, so I'm not going to believe it. Well, the angel's response to Mary's confusion, how can this be, is to tell her, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And at this point, I ask myself, I wonder if Mary knew of the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, that the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you're to call him Emmanuel, God with us. And it's interesting at this point, because can you believe it, we even have people in high office in the church who no longer accept the doctrine of the virgin birth. But in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for virgin is Alma, which can be translated a young woman, which also would include a virgin. But when the Old Testament in Hebrew was translated into Greek, which we call the Septuagint, the word that's used is parthenos. And all the New Testament writers also use this word, which distinctly means a virgin. And so Mary was made left in no doubt, and we're left in no doubt, that she was a virgin at the time when the child was conceived. But when we use the term virgin birth, really it is a misnomer, it's misleading. Because his birth was just like ours, without any complications as far as we know. His mode of entry into this world was exactly the same as ours. It was his conception that was abnormal and unnatural. It was unique. While billions of babies have been born into the world, the same as you and me, no other child has ever been conceived as he was. And so we can safely say Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary by the operation of the Holy Spirit. Dr. Luke records this clearly. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born in you will be called the Son of God. And so we can also say Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary without the cooperation of Joseph. All the details in the text indicate this. So we can say Jesus had a unique conception in the womb of Mary. Ever since God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, every other life has been brought into being through the normal process. 
But when Jesus was born, the law of life was interrupted in order for a birth to be conceived that would be unique in human history. Jesus would make his entry into the world without a human father and therefore without a sinful nature and by the direct infant, the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit. And you see, just as God took a rib from Adam's side and fashioned it into a body for Eve, so here he takes a cell in Mary's womb to fashion it into the body of his son. So if the God who said, let light shine out of darkness in creation, could he not also say, let life appear in the womb of Mary? So we're dealing with something here that is miraculous, much more wonderful than test tube babies and genetic engineering. And by faith, we need to grasp it. And so we come to Mary's second response. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. This second response is remarkable because she moves from incredulous surprise. How can this be to willing and humble obedience? Lord, let it be fulfilled in my life according to your will. She's giving up all her future ambitions. She's making herself available to the purposes of God. What an incredible step of faith and commitment of unconditional surrender to whatever God's will is going to be for her life. And we need to note that she said yes to the will of God facing painful circumstances. She must have had many questions in her mind. How will the people in my village treat me? Will they reject me? Will they want to throw me out? And stoning, of course, was the result of anybody getting pregnant before marriage. But, of course, it wasn't carried out at this time, but she would know how seriously what had happened to her would be viewed in her community. And then how could she explain this to Joseph? How could he be convinced of the story that an angel had appeared to her? Mary knew what a shock it would be to Joseph, who would immediately conclude that she had been unfaithful. And Joseph knew nobody would believe her story. And he also knew nobody would believe his story. Everybody would assume that he was automatically the father. So what shame would be brought upon his family as well as her family into the community. And all of this Mary would have struggled with in her mind as she makes this surrender to the will of God. And, of course, Joseph, in the story, agrees to privately write out a bill of divorce. And because he loves her, he's going to do it privately without any fuss. Now, at this point in the story, the narrative suddenly changes. And what does Mary do next? She goes to visit Elizabeth. Why does she travel her home and go all the way down to Judea? I wonder what you would suggest. Part of me thinks perhaps to escape the blame and the shame that she was facing in her own community. So she travels down to Judea where she meets a relative. She meets Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, of course, is also the recipient of another incredible pregnancy. She's going to give birth to a child, John the Baptist, when she is very old. And so these two women would have so much in common. 
and they would be able to share so much. And Mary goes to Elizabeth, and in her time of crisis, she's finding such consolation and such confirmation in the home of Elizabeth. And you can imagine these two women talking and talking about their mutual experiences. And Mary is so thrilled to be with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is so thrilled to see her. And when they meet, the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb. And she comes out with some words of prophecy. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has promised. Can you imagine what a confirmation this must have been to Mary as she hears these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, confirming all that had been told her by the angel? It must have been wonderful moments. So how much these women would share during this time of crisis. And I would say to any one of you today, if you hit a difficult period, a painful experience, some tragic event in your life, don't, as some people are inclined to do, go off on a path of solitary sadness. At times like that, we need somebody to go to like Elizabeth, somebody who will understand what we're going through, somebody that we can share with. And as the scripture says, we're all to bear one another's burdens and so to fulfill the law of Christ. So Mary said yes to the will of God, facing all these questions. But she also said yes to the will of God, facing an unknown future. You see, her commitment to the will of God is going to be really costly. Little did she know how her life was going to unfold. We know because we read the story. But when she took her big step of faith, she had no idea how the unfolding drama was going to take place. For example, her story begins with a very difficult journey all the way from, Beth, all the way from her home down to Bethlehem as a result of the census. And she was heavily pregnant. And there was no modern transport. That must have been really difficult. She arrives in Bethlehem, and all the guest rooms have gone. The best that they can do is offer a place at the back called a catahumla, which is where the travelers would meet with their cattle. And she gave birth, not in a hospital or in a nice home, but amongst the animals, the smell of cattle. And she places her baby in a manger. She knew none of that when she took her step of faith. And then she had the awful experience of becoming a refugee, clutching in her arms the child Jesus as she flees to Egypt, away from all the brutality of Herod. And then she faced the anxiety that any mother would feel when her son goes missing at 12 years of age for three long days. And that must have been a painful experience. And then she had the horror of seeing the way in which her treasured son was completely rejected by the authorities, because Jesus, in his teaching, completely exposed exposed their hypocrisy. And then finally, when she took her step of faith, she had no idea she would eventually watch her firstborn son hanging in pain and shame on a Roman cross. She had no idea how her future was going to unravel. 
And this is one of the mysteries of our faith, that the God who is almighty and sovereign of the whole creation calls each one of us sometimes to take steps of faith in order for his will to be fulfilled through our lives. So what is our response when God calls us to give ourselves in service to him? Are we ready to say with Mary, I am your servant. May your will be fulfilled in my life. Have you ever said to God, here I am, wholly available. As for me, I will serve the Lord. He waits for us to say things like that to him. And he may then, as we respond, call us to do something significant for him. Or he may call us to serve in our local church. And every one of us who comes to church shouldn't come just for ourselves. We must ask, what can I do? Lord, I want to be your servant. Whether it's practical things at the back, putting out chairs or preparing the refreshments, there's something we can all do. And if you haven't found a niche of service, go to your leaders. Say, what can I do? I'm the Lord's servant, and I want his will to be fulfilled in my life. And God values just as much the humble things done in the background as those who stand here on the pulpit. So she said, I'm your servant, and I'm willing to do whatever it costs to, for your will to be fulfilled in my life. That was all God required from Mary to set in motion the greatest cosmic event since the creation. And as a result of her decision, the Messiah was born, who became the savior of the world. And now in the last few minutes, her second encounter, which was with Simeon. At eight days old, he was circumcised. And then 31 days later, according to the law of Moses, the firstborn son had to be presented to the Lord in a ceremony at the temple. And of course, a sacrifice had to be presented. And we know they were from a humble background because they were allowed to bring two young pigeons or two young doves. And that helps us to understand the humble estate of Mary, which comes out so clearly in her song in Luke 1. But on this occasion, God had met somebody very special to meet Mary and Joseph. And his name was Simeon. We're told he was righteous and devout before God. He was waiting for the Messiah, what Luke calls the consolation of Israel, and he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. Aren't they three beautiful things? And it's a picture of a true Christian. Somebody who is living righteously in the community and who is living in a devoted way before God. And somebody who is waiting for Jesus to return. And somebody who is living their life under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And Simeon's an interesting character because he had a revelation from God by the Holy Spirit. That he would not die before he would see the Lord's Christ. So he's the only Jew, as far as we know, who would know when Jesus would be born. Can you imagine the excitement in that man's heart as he grew older? It must have been something he treasured deeply. Just imagine if the Holy Spirit revealed to you or to me that we would not die before Jesus returned. Wouldn't you get excited about that? I certainly would. Put your man in this man's shoes or his sandals, whatever he was wearing. He would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then we're told he was motivated by the Spirit to go to the temple courts. Imagine him having his morning quiet time, 
and he's poring over the Old Testament scriptures, when the Holy Spirit said to him, Simeon, you must go to the temple now. There you will meet the Messiah. Imagine the thrill of that moment as this wonderful old man climbs the hill, panting to go up to the temple. But what did he expect to see? Because most Jews were waiting for a conquering king who would smash the power of the Romans so that they would be free and be no longer oppressed by this cruel regime. But I think what he saw was maybe not quite what he expected because he saw a humble couple with Mary carrying a child. And the Holy Spirit must have said to him, that's him. That's the promised Messiah. And so trembling with excitement, he goes up to Mary and Joseph and he takes the child in his arms and he says, now let your servant depart in peace. My eyes have seen your child, seen your promised Messiah. But all he'd seen was a young child. I like the words that he said. My eyes have seen your salvation, even though he'd only seen a little child. And I want to ask you this morning, can you say that? Can you honestly and personally say, my eyes have seen in Jesus my salvation? Or do you just look upon him as somebody in a history book? Somebody who was a carpenter, who went about doing good. Yeah, great teaching. Wonderful miracles. Have you seen more than that in Jesus? Have you seen that he came to be your savior, to bring you forgiveness and peace and joy and a promised eternity with him? And you say this morning, my eyes have seen your salvation. If you haven't got assurance of this in your heart, may I plead with you today, come and talk to me. Come and talk to anybody you know so that at the end you can say, yes, I know who Jesus is. He's now living in my life by his spirit. And then he says, now dismiss your servant in peace. I think I would have said, I would like a few more years, Lord. I'd like to see him grow up. I'd like to see his miracles. I'd like to see all his teaching, just some glimpse of his glory. But no, this dear old man was happy just to say, now dismiss your servant in peace. And I don't believe any one of us can die with real peace unless we can say those two things. My eyes have seen your salvation. Now I can die in peace. At the moment, I'm visiting five people who are over 90. I talk about them being old when I forget I'm 85 and I'm also old. But I love visiting because three of them are committed Christians. And they can die in peace. And they're filled with expectation of meeting Jesus. And one lady said to me, because she knows her end is coming, you know, my case is packed. I'm in the departure lounge and I'm just waiting for my flight. It's a wonderful way to look at death. I can die in peace. But the other two are not yet Christians. I'm praying for them. And I'm longing for the time when they can say the same. I think it must be awful to grow old and not to know Jesus and to be able to die in peace. Life becomes meaningless. Death becomes a horrible leap into the dark when you're not sure of where your destiny true is. So isn't it wonderful? And so I close with the words of testimony or the words of uh, prophecy that Simeon brings to Joseph and Mary. They're amazing. He says, this child, Mary, that you're carrying is going to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. Not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. 
And as a result of Jesus coming, billions of Gentiles have come into the light of knowing Jesus. And then he says, this child is destined to cause the rise and falling of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. In other words, he'll divide the nation in two. Some will rise to great heights as a result of seeing who Jesus is, like Saul of Tarsus. And some will fall to depths of shame by rejecting Jesus like Judas Iscariot. And then he says, a sword will pierce your own heart also. And to me it seems his mood of joy and gladness, his mood changes to sadness as he looks at Mary. And 33 years later, Mary stood by the cross and watched her firstborn son being brutally put to death. The sword that pierced his side went through the heart of Mary in deep pain, great grief, and indescribable sorrow. This was all part of God's plan. But remember when Mary said yes to the will of God, she had no idea that it would end like this. A sword will pierce your own heart also. So isn't it incredible that the shadow of the cross falls right over the early life of Jesus? And it was there right through his ministry. He knew that was his eternal destiny. I expect some of you know the paintings of Holman Hunt. The first one is The Light of the World, where he stands outside a door knocking as he comes to us and knocks on our door and says, will you let me in? Or will you be one of my servants? But I wonder if you know the other two. They're not so well known. Um, in the first picture, the child Jesus is depicted running with outstretched arms to his mother. And the sun is shining behind him and the cross well, is in a shadow in front of him. And the second picture is a picture of Jesus in the workshop, and he's stretching in his work, and the sun shines through, and the cross in its shadow is on the wall. And there are horrible nails on the bench, and there's a hammer on the bench as well. Now, you might say to me both pictures are rather fanciful in form, but the underlying idea is absolutely right from the beginning. The cross was his destiny. And again and again, the pain in Jesus' spirit comes out in his ministry as he knew that was to be his end. So what a momentous message Mary received when the angel Gabriel came. No wonder it says in Scripture she treasured all these things in her heart. She must have often reflected on the life-changing message that came from Gabriel. And she must have often pondered on those poignant words that came from Simeon. So I close with three questions. One, have your eyes been opened to see who Jesus is? I truly hope they have. If not, may they be open today as you see Jesus, the one who died for you. Second question, can you really say, I can die in peace? Because I've seen who Jesus is. And thirdly, would you be willing today to say with Mary, I am your servant. I'm willing to serve you with my life. I've always been challenged by the words of David Livingstone. God, send me anywhere. Only go with me. Lay any burden on me. Only sustain me. 
and sever any tie in my heart except the tie that binds my heart to yours. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'll work into our hearts one thing that you want us to work on as a result of our meditation on your word this morning. Thank you for your servant, Mary. Thank you for her willingness to respond to your call upon her life. Help us, Lord, to be equally willing to serve you in some way, whether it's through our daily work expressing that we love you, or whether it's here in the church. Lord, may we be your servants so that you can work in us and through us for the blessing of others. And may we be willing, Lord, to so commit ourselves to you and so live with you for day to day that we live with expectancy of your return. Thank you for those words which remind us, O oh joy, O oh delight, should we go without dying. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. So speak into our hearts and may there be fruit in our lives as a result of being here today. We ask it for your greater glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.